He's a, he's a hippie who got radically saved in the Jesus movement, and he'll explain more of that later, but bless you, Charles. Thank you. So Thank you, Paul. Love you. Thank you. It's really uh, amazing to be here. And, uh, yeah, I, I got to meet part of my family I haven't met before, so it's good, good to meet you all. And uh, I had been friends with Alan for a long time. I, I forget when we met. I think it had something to do with Randy Clark. And, uh, and it, so it may have been 20 years or so, but the, uh, I, I've, a little while after that, I was in Michigan with uh, Lance Wallnow and Alan was there as part of the crew. We got to spend a few days together. It was really amazing. So. I always consider Alan one of my friends until he took Paul. And uh, no, no, he's, he's still my friend, totally my friend. But I, I'll tell you a, a little secret that um, in my mind, I had Paul in the shoot, you know, for my successor. And, uh, and so Alan scooped him, which just means he was really smart. And, and it was God, you know, uh, Paul, Paul came back from preaching here, I think in January, and told me that Alan had asked him to pray about this. And my brain was sad, but my heart was happy. I just felt like he had to go do this, you know. So we're, we love you guys, we all miss you. And uh, last week, some, one of Ruth's good friends came to the altar weeping, because she's lonely and, and uh, they're, they're loved and missed, but we're really glad you're here, you know. So, and God's bigger than that, right? Like, we, we don't have to stay someplace because somebody's going to cry that we leave. <laughs> I, I've made a lot of people cry that I left, but some have rejoiced, you know, so just. <laughs> we're following Jesus, right? So sometimes people like it and sometimes they don't. And, but we're, we're thrilled. Actually, I was thrilled. And. Alan called me to apologize, and uh, no, <laughs> and he didn't have to. He just called, you know, we talked about it, and he he's just sensed the favor of God on Paul and felt like it was the right time, and so I'm honored. Alan and I, we'd talked, uh, you know, over the years of maybe coming here and speaking, and um, so it happened now, and, uh, and I'll be back, you know. It's, a threat or a promise never doesn't. <laughs> you'll find out. But the uh, but I'll. It's really a joy. This is actually my first time in the state of New Mexico. I have no idea how that happened. But um, oh, thank you, thank you. I grew up in Northern California, and actually, just we left there uh, in 1987 and went to Pennsylvania, and. Uh, it was where God sent us, but we were in, we were in a, a place that we considered paradise. God had brought revival in this little resort town in Northern California, and uh, out in the middle of nowhere, three hours east of San Francisco, my wife's from San Francisco, and uh, it was my hometown, and in the middle of nowhere, a thousand people gathered and what gathered them was the presence of God. You know, just somehow we had pursued worship and intercession and the presence. And um, 
And so it was hard to leave. And we went to Pennsylvania, had no idea why we were there. We felt, I mean, we did know because God spoke to me to go. But when we got there, I thought, man, I must have committed a crime because I am now in Siberia. We got there <laughs> in, the, in the late fall. All the leaves had been blown off the trees. The day we were driving from western Pennsylvania to uh, the Harrisburg area, there was a hurricane leftover, you know, like a storm, blew all the beautiful autumn leaves off the trees. So we got there, and it's pouring rain, and all the, tree, the leaves are gone from the trees, and it just got worse. I mean... <laughs> You know, so I, three or four months later, I'm laying on a frozen football field, staring at a gray sky, crying, God, what's my crime? Tell me why I'm in Siberia. Maybe I can get off on good behavior. I'll, you know, work hard at it. And uh, I didn't know that he had sent us there to, the seed had to die into the ground. And we've just been blessed by, once we got over that, you know, it took, Took about five years before we saw what God was doing, to be honest, you know. We had culture shock. We missed garlic and uh, good cooking and, not, and no offense to any Pennsylvanians that are here, but Pennsylvania Dutch cooking is unique. Um, but <laughs> just say that. It's good. I've gotten to like it. But, and we knew enough. We said, hey, when you come someplace, do not pick on their culture, you know, because we came, we knew, even though we were suffering, we knew we were missionaries. <laughs> so, okay, you know, get into it, learn the ways of the natives, but it was lonely and hard for years. And anyway, 30 years later, as Paul said, we've just had, we've really had a level of continuous revival since 1994 when the Holy Spirit followed me home from Toronto <laughs> September of 1994. We didn't know what to do. We were stressing out. It was an eight-hour drive. We said, what are we going to do? I don't know. We finally decided we won't do anything. And then the next Sunday, the Holy Spirit came. And uh, without trying or announcing it, just like 300 people came forward to it for a, out of about four or 500 people in the room, they came forward and you know, three hours later, we were leaving. You know, people had bounced and cried and fell and shook and got delivered. And, and uh, we thought, wow, we like this. We got saved in the Jesus movement. So we had seen all this stuff before, but usually we hadn't had the context that it would just go on and on for years, but it has, and it's awesome. And we're, we're so thankful. And God sent reinforcements along the way. You know, we got tired and then refreshment would come or we'd get cynical and then you know I'd go someplace my heart would get blasted and broken and come back and just see <laughs> sometimes when your your heart's getting hard sometimes God just lets miracles occur right in front of you you know like yeah I prayed for this guy <laughs> and so you come back you repent and you go after it again and again and thank God in 2001 Randy Clark moved from St. Louis to to the Harrisburg area, and uh, that was just a huge boost for our whole city and for, for us. He came, I mean, I know he came because God told him to, but, he, but the, the vehicle or the bridge that God used was our friendship that had, had been cultivated for about five years, and then 
So that changed our history. And we're just so thankful. We have a beautiful community. And I'm, I'm older than Alan, you know, so um, I'm on overtime. Uh, I, <laughs> I'll be 71 in October. And, uh, but I, you know, I, we, we've got the joy of watching this whole group of younger leaders in their late 20s, 30s, few in their 40s, just that we're, we feel good and that it's gonna keep going. And that's our goal. So I'm really, you know, I'm thrilled to be here at New Life Center because I'm seeing what looks to me like a successful, um, a successful succession. And of course, that says a lot about you, you know, that you're here and you trusted God, you trusted Alan's choice and discernment and wisdom, and now you're learning to love and trust Paul and Ruth. And if you ever get tired of them, we'll take them back. Just want to let you know. So, and we told them that when they left, you know. So, so uh, but bless you guys. It's such an honor to be here. And I, I just, I love, I, I came to the Lord. I was a hippie. I know this is the land of old hippies, and so I'm right at home. And uh, yay, <laughs> and, uh, and I looked for God in all the wrong places like most many in our generation and finally uh, through a whole, it's like God played chess with me and he won, you know, and we, we ended up, some Christians had helped us fix our car and, uh, and I'd been witnessed to a million times but it had never convinced me because I hitchhiked a lot and I was always happy when Christians picked me up because I knew, okay, they're not gonna try to kill me and nobody's gonna shoot at this car. You know, and, and I'd, had, I'd had rides like that <laughs> in my travels. And so I always liked Christians because they were real nice. I knew they would witness to me and I'd listen politely and say, that's nice, I'm glad it works for you because I, without knowing it, I was a postmodern, you know, that that was their truth and I had mine, which wasn't truth at all, but the, uh, but you know what finally got us, some Christians helped us, they fixed a car, we were out in the middle of nowhere, a little cowboy church on Rawhide Road <laughs> in Jamestown, California, and, and our, our, battery, our car battery was dead and we saw a light. You know, it's getting dark, we're bummed out, uh, and we see this light, we go, well, we'll walk there and ask to use the phone. This was 1972, no cell phones or and uh, we'll call some friends and they'll help us. And it was a little church. And they, they didn't have a phone. There were about seven or eight cowboys having a Bible study and they offered to help us and they did. They charged our battery, told us about Jesus. I told them about Krishna. They weren't encouraged, I'm sure. But, the, uh, but they planted a seed of kindness because I wanted to pay them back for the $2 they'd spent to charge our battery, and they just laughed. They, they had Christianese language. We just wanna bless you, you know? Like, you know, we're long-haired hippies. They're like real rednecks, you know? <laughs> These were real cowboys, the kind that stretch fence and brand calves, and you know, that was their life. And uh, so we thought, well, we'll have to go to a meeting and put this $2 in an offering, uh, you know, to pay back the karmic balance of the universe. And so it happened, we lived up in the, in the pine trees, kind of like up 
you know, more like Taos kind of country. And, uh, and so we saw there was a little church. I was a river guide, and so there, I, did, I worked on weekends, which was good because I wasn't ready for Sundays. And, uh, but we found out there was a night meeting at this little church in my hometown called the Chapel in the Pines, and it was, it was a Jesus people thing. It wasn't even that church. It was just young people, all new Christians. And we came in, and we're waiting for the offering, and we got ambushed in the worship. You know, just when the worship started, I, st- I felt what I'd been looking for, and I didn't know what it was, but it was like this quest of multiple years for a, a tangible reality, and I felt it when the presence of the Lord came in. I didn't have that language. You know, I just went, we went back to our hippie house where we lived with a bunch of friends. I said, you guys, you have to come to this meeting. It is the best natural high I've ever felt. <laughs> and it was, it wasn't a natural high. It was a supernatural high. It's the most high, right? But the, uh, but they, you know, they never received an offering. So we thought, well, we better go back. Maybe they'll have one this week. And, you know, after a few weeks of that, I was on my knees on a yoga mat and just, I, I, I said, I was, no one was there because I'd sworn I wouldn't become a Jesus freak by going to these meetings. So I was wrong. And, uh, and I'm on my knees, the house is empty. And I said, Jesus, I've tried just about everything, but I've never even considered you. And I said, if you'll show me you're real, I'll follow you. And that was... 48 years ago, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so what happened was, how did he show me his real? The next, the next time we come to a meeting, I, I didn't say this, but I always hummed the lines about Jesus because I, you know, I didn't think he was God. I just thought he was like, you know, whatever you think, an avatar or something. So the... Uh, you know, so we would praise God all day long, you know, like just praise God because it was a concept, not a person. And, uh, and so that night, and my wife is interesting, same, same day she's at her mom's house in San Francisco, she had prayed a similar prayer. And she'd said, I don't know if this is real, but I'm gonna do everything, I'll, I'll give it a try, six months. This is like Pascal's wager, you know, <laughs> I, he says, I'll do everything. I'll act like a Christian. I'll go to the meetings. And, and if you're real, you got me. So, that, so I called her to tell her what I'd done. And she said, I just said almost the same thing. So the next meeting we go to, the song's coming. And for the first time in my conscious life, maybe when I was a kid, I, I did something like this. But I, I worshiped Jesus. You know, I, I sang the song, Jesus, my Jesus. And when I did, and this happened to both of us, like warm oil poured over us. So Holy Spirit, isn't he kind? I mean, we were still, you know, we we weren't converted, you know. We weren't, I mean, we were converted, but we weren't cleaned up. And uh, we'll put it that way. And just in all our arrogance and deception and new age stuff and God, isn't he kind? Just... Here, here, this is what you've been looking for your whole life. If you're thirsty, he said, you know, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink. And 
out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. So Holy Spirit, we're just thirsty today. And even though you've given us drink, we're, we're even more thirsty. We just want more. Pray you would come. We pray you'd manifest. We pray you'd pour out, God, that this, this house, New Life City, would become an oasis in the midst of a desert land, God, that there would be a flow of living water out of, out of the city of Albuquerque, out of this house that brings, brings a harmony and a, and a teamwork with other churches in the city and in the region, God, that it spreads across the Southwest, God, that, that you would move in New Mexico, Arizona, West Texas, Utah and Nevada and Colorado, God, these dry and thirsty lands, God, these lands that are marked by drought so much of their time, God, there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, an outpouring of your presence. There would be blind eyes open. There would be dead hearts brought to life, God. There would be supernatural, there would be miracles, and there would be a revelation that reaches the younger generation and frees them from the lies that are being pumped in through the culture, God, that there would be revival in this land. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that was fun. Guess you're ready to go home. Okay. <laughs> okay, I, I'll just wanna, I just, I know we're all in this season, um, you know, that that we're, you know, there are, I've, I've been inundated with bad news, you know. How about you? How, <laughs> you know, 2020, the year that wasn't, or they were two weeks to flatten the curve. Here we are, you know. Uh, you know, it's surging all over the place. I saw a sign last night, it said, new surge, we recommend masks inside your house. I saw that sign last night, it was lit up. I, don't, I thought, I hope that wasn't, I was driving, so I wasn't like I could stop and go, really? Anyway, I'm just thank God that you're here and he's here and that he has a whole army of ambassadors embedded in the midst of everything that's happening. And so, um, so I was seeking the Lord in the beginning of the year. I was crying out. I was just in intercession. I, I just have such a burden for children, for, for the little ones and for the, the teenagers and the, you know, that are, that are, growing up into this environment that is unprecedented in terms of the, the intensity of things happening all over the world. And we need Jesus. <laughs> we need, you know, I find myself praying, even so, Lord, come quickly. You know, and I hope that he does. I mean, I know that he will come eventually, but I hope that he'll come quickly to us in our place that we're in now and that we will shine in the midst of the darkness. So I was crying out, and, and I'd find myself waking up, sometimes in the middle of the night, almost in a fetal position, just in intercession and travail. And, and I said one night, in the middle of the night, and you know, it's a weird thing, yet I'm, I'm, in, I'm in grief, or I don't know what it is, you know, travail, I never had a baby, but it's, some, it's this intense thing, and, and in the midst of it, there's the presence of God and his goodness and his peace and it's there. And you know, we're, we're in this together. Do you, do you understand, he, 
intercedes for us and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings, even though in their presence is fullness of joy. So it's this paradox that we live in. And in that, I said, God, do you have anything to say? And he said, yes. He said, awake, arise. Five things, awake, arise, count it all joy. No eye has seen. And I'm filling in all the blanks here, you know, and because these are familiar phrases. And the last one was my eyes. You know, my, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, beholding the evil and the good. My eyes are running over the face of the earth, looking for those whose hearts are true and perfect toward me, that I can show myself strong. And I said, okay, God. So this has been a theme for me. And I, I want to touch on, on this, this counting it all joy, because I feel like this is one of our, our everyday most powerful weapons that we have. And it's part of it. And so it's, it seems contrary. I'm gonna pick it up and I'll try to not keep you here, you know, till football season. Um, <laughs> James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And, uh, and, and some translations say all kinds of trouble, you know. So count it all joy. Doesn't that sound crazy? Like, oh, good, trouble, yay, you know. Count it all joy, my brother, when you meet... Troubles of various kinds, because you know something, you have a secret, that the trying of your faith or the testing of your faith produces something. It produces steadfastness or patience, endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, that you may be perfect and complete. King James says, perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. And so, why would we, first of all, the term counted all joy doesn't mean like, oh, that's a good one. I'll mark it down. I got one more, one more, one more suffering, one more trial, one more tribulation, one more insane pressure. No, he's saying count, this word count is a governmental word. It means take control of your thoughts, take control of your perspective, and and you will govern this situation into joy. See, so you're going to, so when the enemy throws something at you, what we do is we catch it, but we don't keep it. We catch it, and then we're looking for, okay, there's a runner on second, and he's going, I'm gonna throw it to third and get a double play, and you know, I'm gonna do something with this trouble that comes to me, and it's going, he's going to regret sending this trouble to me. I'm gonna count it all joy, and when I count it all joy, I release a productive process that transforms not only me, but the whole situation. Okay, so this is why we would count it all joy. Now, Paul um, has the same theme. This isn't just James, this is the Holy Spirit. You know, Romans, you know, Romans chapter five starts out and saying, you know, that we, that we have peace with God and that we stand in grace and that we have access through, through Christ and, and we stand before his throne. And then, it, and then it says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's verse two. And then verse three says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. <laughs> 
Ah, and look, he's got the same secret, knowing that suffering produces endurance. It's the same Greek word. I don't know why the translators translate it two different ways, but not only that, we rejoice in our troubles. So this seems crazy, especially the word here, and some of you may have a translation that says we glory in our tribulations. Not only that, not only do we glory in the expectation of the glory of God, that is glory will fill all the earth, but we glory, we boast, we're obnoxiously happy when we fall into suffering. Now, what does this mean? Why would we boast about something? That's the, the word could be translated boast. How many think boast is kind of an obnoxious word? You know, if you're always around people that are boasting, you're kind of like, yeah, seems arrogant, doesn't it? It seems arrogant, but it's actually humility to obey the Lord, okay? So, so we boast is like this. Say the Broncos make it to the Super Bowl this year. You know, yeah, I figured that's the closest football team, you know, so I was a 49er faithful until they were unfaithful. When Joe Montana left, I switched my, you know, now I'm just, you know, who's ever good? I like the Pittsburgh Steelers, sometimes the Eagles, sometimes the Ravens. You know, when they're hot, I'm their fan, you know. So the... Uh, the Seahawks, the Seahawks and the 49ers were in a Super Bowl a while back. And in, after the first quarter, I thought, I know the Seahawks are gonna win. I could see by the way they're playing. And so, you know, partway through, I'm rooting for the Seahawks and Ann who grew up, like her family, when, she, when you know, 1950s, the, the 49ers used to play in this little stadium in Golden Gate Park, Kizar Stadium and her family had season tickets on the 50-yard line. That was, you know, they walked. They lived about a mile from, from there, and they would walk over, and, and Y.A. Tittle was the, the quarterback, and, you know, all the way with Y.A. and you know, all that stuff. Johnny Unitas was with the Baltimore Colts before they were unfaithful and went to Indianapolis and all that stuff. But the, so back to this, but say the, the Broncos are in the Super Bowl and they're getting slaughtered in the first quarter. But you have like this time machine access and you see that they're gonna win at the end of the game. So it changes your whole perspective. So you know, they're getting, they're getting punched, they're getting slammed and even when they're getting punched, you're going, awesome! Not because you think they're gonna lose, but because you know, man, this is gonna make such a good game. The fourth quarter is gonna be amazing. <laughs> you know, it's gonna be the biggest turnaround you've ever seen. So why would I rejoice in my sufferings? Because I know something. And what I know is it's actually right here in these verses, okay? So I, re I glory, I start boasting when trouble comes. And that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that I don't suffer. It doesn't mean that I don't have grief or experience loss. But when I get through whining, then I start boasting. See, like I know the whining isn't gonna get me anywhere. It's just like, oh, you know, it's my, my, unsanctified flesh coming out. And some of it's just my humanity because sometimes it involves other people and I'm thinking, God, this is such a disaster. And then have you ever thought it was a disaster and God whispers to you like, hey, it's gonna be good? See, that's like you just got a little time machine up to the fourth quarter. And so, so when I boast in my troubles, I'm releasing the activity of God into 
the situation and into my life. And so what happens is that, that, that it's a confidence in God, it's not in myself. It's like, God, this is awesome. This is so terrible, only you could get us out of this. <laughs> you know, like, hey God, I've been in the sea for three days and three nights. God says, don't worry, Paul, I've got something great planned for you, you know, and so suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So what on earth does this mean? It's, it means that we understand our present trials and sufferings are, are producing a transformation that makes us more like Jesus. And so, we, you know, and we don't just, you know, we're not just like stoic, like we don't have any feelings. We have at least one feeling, right? So, the, but, we, we, but we're not trying to deny our feelings, but it's rather we're taking it and we're counting it joy. So we're, I'm taking my normal human feelings and I'm telling them, you know, shape up, God is going to win. Shape up, God is gonna win. I'm gonna shout now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rejoice, I'm gonna celebrate now, I'm gonna be obnoxious now because I'm in confidence. And it's an amazing thing that God will do that. I, I went through, I'm watching my time here. I'm already, you're supposed to be gone already, but I'm gonna keep you here for a little bit longer. But the, uh, <laughs> don't you usually get out at 11.30? Okay, sometimes. Except when long-winded preachers come. Okay, go. Okay, we won't worry about the clock. The, uh, and so, so um, I'm, I'm in Harrisburg, I end up, this is a whole long story, but I end up being the pastor of a church that had just had a huge calamity, and, and, I'm, and the guy who planted the church was a hometown hero, and I'm from out of town, nobody knows me except the pastor who hired me. And then, you know, it messes up, he messes up, he runs off, he leaves his family and runs off. And later he repented and he's still my friend. All these people are good guys even if they do bad things. You know, that's my, my view of what it means to be a Christian brother, that we forgive and we restore. And so the, but anyway, this happens and everybody's upset because they're freaked out because their hero has just, you know, d done something terrible. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who think they should be the next pastor. And, uh, and I don't wanna be the pastor. I'm from California. I'm trying to find a good, you know, good Mexican food or something or good, good uh, Italian food. <laughs> that would be, you know, something. And, uh, and, we're, and so in the midst of that, I have people coming and accusing me that somehow I must have had a Jezebel spirit and that after he hired me that I really wanted to become the pastor of the church, and that's why this bad thing happened. And pastors would come to me and say this, like local pastors, they'd come and say, well, we think you shouldn't be the pastor and stuff. And I said, well, me too, I agree with you completely. <laughs> Except God told me, because I was praying when this all happened, I was praying and I thought, God, I guess, what am I gonna do? Maybe we'll, some, a, a friend had invited us to, to Utah to take a church, because he was going to Belize and, and you know, and we were always welcome back in California, even though we knew we shouldn't go back there. The uh, and in the midst, so I'm praying, God, this is a disaster. It's like a 747 going down. All these people are going to get stumbled, and don't let their hearts get hard toward Jesus. Don't let the children grow up thinking that Jesus is like this. 
And, uh, and in the midst of it, I said, I'll, and I volunteered. I said, Jesus, I'll just stay here till they find a new pastor. And, uh, and, and God spoke to me. He said, I have set you here. And I thought, like, what? What if I don't want to be set here? You know, like, but I understood that. So that's why I was there, you know. So these guys are yelling at me and stuff. And it would wear me out. And I'd say, look, this, this church was meeting in a casket warehouse in the hood. There were... And I'm not exaggerating, there were drive-by shootings, cars got stolen, a, f a few cars got stolen during services, and, and a lot of cars got broken into during services, you know, and finally we got a canine unit and parked it in front of the church during services, and it stopped the problem, but the... Uh, <laughs> So we got all these off-duty policemen got saved, you know, but yeah, it was great because they'd stand in our services. But, the, uh, but so this is the scene, and I'm thinking like, and I'd say, look, I don't want to be a pastor, number one. I really don't. I'm just doing this because Jesus called me to do it. Number two, I don't want to live in Pennsylvania because all my friends and relatives are in California. And number three, if I wanted to if I wanted to steal a church in Pennsylvania, I wouldn't pick this location, believe me. So the, uh, it's all location, 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 you know, and this is like, we would tell people, we lived in a suburb and we'd tell people, hey, come to church, it's really awesome. They'd go, oh, where is it? We'd say, well, it's on South 13th Street, and their eyes would glaze over and like, that's nice. <laughs> and so, the, but anyway, so this happened, and about the fourth time it happened, the, 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 a pastor and a local prophet who had seen me before and, and had this same concern, and they brought an out-of-town prophet from Chicago, and, uh, and the out-of-town prophet was, told me he had TV shows in five states, and he's given me his resume, which usually means they're full of baloney, but that's just, uh, but anyway, I'm trying to be polite, yeah, okay, okay, and and then he gets into this thing about how, you know, this place will be dust in six months and I need to get out of this office and go back to my little corner office. And I didn't want to be in that office. The staff asked me to be in that office because they felt like orphans, you know. So I said, okay, I'll go in the office. And, he, and he's just saying all this stuff. And in the middle, and he got really inspired, you know, and he's spitting on me, he stood up, he's preaching at me and and he's a big Italian guy in a dark suit and a black tie, and he's going for it, and uh, his name was Mike. And so, Mike, uh, I, I raised my hand, and I said, excuse me, Mike. So in the middle of this, I, before I raised my hand, I whispered a silent prayer. I said, Jesus, this is really hard. And in the middle of this, this had happened over and over again. This was by far the most intense one. In the middle of that, Jesus, I heard Jesus say, Rejoice and be glad. Like, I, I'm saying, Jesus, this is really hard. I'm whining, you know, like, oh, you know, and, and he says, rejoice and be glad. So I raised my hand and said, excuse me, Mike, I just remembered something really important. I need to do it right away. And uh, I'll be back in five minutes and just, you know, press the pause button. And so I got up and I went catty corner, clear across this big old building, closed myself in this little room, and I started saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you. Oh, Jesus, this is so awesome, thank you. And pretty soon I started saying, shadadabakiki, 
Hallelujah, glory, you know, and I'm going like, yes, yes, oh God, this is so awesome. I'm being persecuted for righteousness. They're saying all manner of evil against me falsely, and I am happy, blessed. Yeah! <laughs> so, it's like a three-minute, you know, oil change, lube job, whole thing. I go back into the office and I sit down and I go, okay, what, what were you saying? And so he finishes his tirade. Kind of the steam went out of it. But here's the thing, it never happened again. And yay, it was a word from the Lord and obedience. That's all, all my part was. But here's an interesting thing. We left California to avoid splitting a church. And the reason, the reason and it was really painful because there were a lot of false accusations against us by a group, and then we had all our friends and supporters on the other group. And we just thought, God, this stinks. This is a little town. This is a great big church. And if, if I just quit and build houses... I could, I knew, I said, like, in six months, people would come to us and say, you know, you're really our pastor. Would you just, could we have a Bible study? And pretty soon we'd be planting a church in the same town with all these people we loved. And I loved, even the people that had false accusations, I loved them, especially after I moved away. Then I really loved them because <laughs> I could process all the pain, <laughs> you know, and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive all the layers. And, uh, and so now here I am, and I'm still getting false accusation. And I'm, I'm like, I didn't make this happen. And uh, after that thing, it stopped the spirit of accusation against us, and God reversed it. And now, I mean, it's a weird thing, and we don't deserve it, but around the world, we, my wife and I, have a good name. Like people, they think we're better than we are. Instead of thinking we're worse than we are, they think we're better than we are. And I say, God, I prefer obedience. Anyway, so could I, <laughs> could I just tell you, counting it all joy really is important. You know? so, so I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing then, but I was rejoicing in my tribulation and it was releasing transformation. And, and so when, when all kinds of trouble hits it, it when we, we rejoice, we boast in it, it releases the transformation and it says it produces. At least in the, in the English Standard Version says, it, we know that it produces endurance. We know that, so we have to know that. So now you know it, okay? You've been informed, you know it, but we have to know it like it's a perspective. That's what that, that word no means. It's more like we have this perspective that when I do this, it's actually going to produce something, it's gonna cultivate something, it's going to bring about, it's going to prepare me for something, and it's going to start with producing endurance, and, and some of your translations say patience, some may say steadfastness, but this is a really interesting word. It's a, it's a, it describes persistence and resilience, and, and it was actually used in that time to describe an active manly fortitude. There's a politically incorrect term, manly, yes. A manly fortitude, and some women have more manly fortitude than some men, I'll tell you that. But it is used 
It was used to describe the soldier who in the thick of the hard battle doesn't say, we're losing, I'm out of here, but he continues to give as much as he gets and he's going to stay there and he's not dismayed by how many wounds he has and he's gonna fight to the end and if he doesn't win, he dies. And here's the good thing, if we die in the battle for Jesus, we really win. You know, I mean, it's like he, the worst thing the devil can do to us is kill our bodies. And it's also the nicest thing that could happen to us because one day we're in this messy, ugly, horrible world facing some persecutor and the next moment we run into the arms of Jesus and he says, welcome home, son. Good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful to the end. Enter into my joy. I just love it. Okay, so it produces this endurance. And then endurance, so why would we boast? Because we know that it's going to develop character and hope in us. And character is, you know, character, it's just, it means, it's, it's used to describe metal, M-E-T-A-L, metal, that is purified. And it's kind of like, I, you know, a good example might be if you have cast iron it's strong, but it's fragile. But if you take that iron and you heat it and you beat it, and you heat it and you, you freeze it and you heat it, I'm oversimplifying the process of making steel out of iron, but if you process that steel long enough, it is transformed, or that iron long enough, it's transformed into steel, which is flexible and resilient compared to iron. And so some of what we're going through, you go through these battles and you get a joy that the world can't understand. You know, the happiest people I know are the people who've been betrayed and overcome it. The people who've had everything taken from them and they don't care, God restored more. These are the, there's, a, there's like this, this joy that the world can't destroy. And as we walk through those things, instead of fighting for our rights or fighting for ourselves, and I know there are times when you should do that, but in general, especially when it's about me, it's like, have at it. I'm gonna rejoice and boast in the Lord. And then it transforms us and it gives us this joy that doesn't even make sense to people. Why are you so happy? <laughs> Yay, <laughs> it's because of who's in you. <laughs> okay, and so... So that's what, uh, you know, affliction produces that. You know, it produces that, that perseverance, that resilience, and that begins to transform our character and we become people of proven character. Like we're worthy to become vessels of honor. That, that word character is related to the error of becoming appropriate, becoming qualified. It qualifies us for the next thing that God has for us. And so then, it, then, we, then character produces, all these, each thing's producing something. So when, when this trial hits you, it's not because, oh, did God forget about me? I'm being picked on again. No, it's because God is answering your prayers. Make me like you, Jesus. It's okay, we have to do a little transformation and here's how it starts. Have you ever seen somebody remodel a house? <laughs> Before the pretty, beautiful stuff, you start with the demo, right? You just gotta do the demolition, and it's messy and terrible. And uh, some of us have been under demolition for a while, and we say, God, get it over with. I wanna start seeing the plan. 
I want to see those new, beautiful fixtures, you know. And so, so but here's a, what's really amazing is that suffering actually will eventually lead to hope. And hope is such a powerful concept. Sometimes I say, well, I hope this message doesn't go too long. But that's not Bible hope because I already know that it's not going to happen. I'm just sort of saying it. But the, but the, the other Bible hope is a fixed confidence in a promise. And, that, and our faith becomes the substance of what we hope for. And so in this suffering, we, it produces hope in us, and hope brings us into communion with the Holy, with the, the, the Trinity. You know, listen to this. Hebrews 6.19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, the secret place behind the veil where Jesus has gone as a forerunner to us. And so when, I, when, I, when this hope is produced in me, it's like everything else fades away and there's one thing I'm living for, that's Jesus. I don't care what my title is. You could strip me of my titles. You could take all my goods. You could take my car. You could take a lot of things from me. Please don't take my children and grandchildren. You know, that, that <laughs> I don't know if I could get over that one, but I mean, all the other stuff, it's like, who cares? Who cares? You know, what I care about is, am I walking with him? Am I in the easy yoke? Man, God, you call this a light burden? I must be really much stronger than I know because I'm getting crushed, you know? The, uh, so, but, so here, you know, the same way like resistance will strengthen a muscle, challenges to our hope strengthens our hope. You know, the more, the more reasons we have not to hope, that's when God can make our hope so strong. And then the end of it is, this is so powerful, verse five, and hope does not disappoint or put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And so, so here's the problem. This whole thing starts as God says, I just wanna make you a bigger vessel for my love. And when the love of God gets poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit, it's the same exact word that God says when he poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, when he pours out his spirit on all flesh. And when God pours out his love to you, he's not just pouring out a little teaspoon or a teacup, he's pouring the Pacific Ocean right on top of you, you know, and it doesn't matter. You might only have a teacup, but the whole Pacific Ocean is gonna wash over your life and you have access to everything within that ocean of his love. So this is a powerful transformation that makes us supernatural people. And it changes our reality when we know the love of God. It's like there's, there's something about it that we, we fully experience this outpouring of his love and it, and it changes us. You know, we start reading the Bible and we read verses and we believe them. Why? Not because we're simple-minded or because we're you know, easily deceived, but we, we now read them and we're like, ah, oh, that's all true. And it's true and it's true and it's true. And why do we know it's true? Because, because in his love, is everything we need. You know, in the love of God is everything we need. There's joy, there's peace, there's patience, there's kindness, there's goodness, there's faith, and there's faithfulness. 
The love of God makes us faithful because the love of God isn't seeking its own advantage. The love of God is rejoicing when the other does well. Just understand, this is like, you wanna be a supernatural person, you wanna move in the power of the Holy Spirit, then here's a good, here's a good tool. The next suffering that hits you, just, just say, I'm gonna count it all joy. I'm gonna go there, and when patience has its perfect worth, I will become mature, complete, and, and the next word means entire. It means it, like there's no lack in your life. Psalm 23, one. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Heo vas mi pastor, nada me faltará. There's nothing that will be missing to me. Rien me manque, or something like that in French. I preach in different places and you just kind of vaguely remember phrases, but it's like the, the uh, like, there, like we move into a place when the love of God gets poured out on us, we move into a place where every promise is accessible and the thing is, we're no longer desperate to access it. It's just there for us. You know, it, there's a, we're not beggars now, we're sons and daughters. And in the love of God, miracles, in the love of God, every promise is kept. And it's, this is supernatural life where miracles are no longer, you know, uh, David Hume, the famous Scottish skeptic who he wrote, that, you know, well, you know, the Christian, you can't, you know, the Christian religion wouldn't exist without a miracle. And he wrote this whole essay on why he doesn't think miracles are true because he can't reasonably prove it. <laughs> well, that's true, has to be revealed. But the, but the whole Christian religion depends on a miracle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, and to this day, you can't be a Christian without a miracle. You can't be... You can't have belief in the Christian faith without a miracle. And he meant it as a put down. And I just think like, you know, that is absolutely true. And the miracle is that he comes into my life and transforms it. He comes into my little puny brain that's darkened and, and my futile thinking and my darkened heart and he transforms it and he gives me the mind of Christ and he gives me a new heart and on that heart, he writes the law. And now I keep it because of love. Okay, so I'll just stop with this and, and uh, you can stand up because then I'll, I'll be a little faster. You know, I'll know that I'm, okay. Romans eight twenty eight. In the middle of, you know, in the middle of the book of Romans is this promise and it is a promise. And it's really the central promise, I think, of the whole Bible. It sums up every other promise God has made, the promise to Abraham. And all the sub-promises that fall under that category. And Romans 8.28, and many of you know that. Romans 8.28 is, you know, starts in Romans about 8.19, and it, and it talks about suffering. The whole creation groans, you know, and we, we consider these present sufferings to be uh, unworthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. It's talking about sufferings, and it says, when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us. And on the other side, it, it says that God, who, who didn't spare his own son, but gave us, you know, I mean, didn't 
didn't spare his own son, he gave us his own son, how will he not with him give us all things? And then it ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the book ends, life is hard. And the middle is this stunning promise, Romans 8, 28, and we know it. And we know that for those who love God, this isn't for every human being, this is for those that love God. It can be for every human being because this invitation is to come. But he says, for those who love God, once we love him, he now treats us as children. You know, if a crook comes to your house and he does something bad, you know, destroys, destroys something that you really value, you might call the police and you'd consider him a criminal. But if one of your kids does it, you're probably not gonna call the police. You might, you might be mad and you might deal with it, but you're not gonna call the police because you treat your children different than you treat strangers. And because you're the children of God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So this is a promise that even the bad things God will use, and we may not understand it, and it usually takes a long time, longer than we would like. Occasionally we get like instant perspective, but usually it's a long process, and some of us may not see the reward until the other side, and our reward will be great in heaven. There's an inheritance being kept for us in heaven. But this, I mean, this is stunning. For those who love God, all things, all catastrophes and calamities, political, economic, social, physical, all, in, all things in catastrophes and calamities are for you in God because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And our lives resiliently unfold as a message of hope in the middle of a hopeless world and there and that message is being indelibly written by the grace of God, which is the supernatural presence of God inside you that gets you up every day and makes you happy when you don't even know why. Thank you, Jesus. Our Father brings gladness out of sadness. He, he's, he's the ultimate engineer. He engineers blessings out of blunders. He, he has a dark room where all the negatives are turned into positives. And he's a situation reversal expert. I love what he does. And here's a verse that I know I'd read it many times, but just this last year, for some reason, it caught my attention. Deuteronomy 23, five. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, the false prophet who was trying to destroy the people of God. The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because he loves you. Can we just say this? Every, he will turn every curse that comes against you into a blessing. That is a powerful word of God. That's the eternal word of God. Somebody may curse you, a witch may curse you, a shaman may curse you, but a God, can, you can say, you know, I think there's curses coming against me. God, would you turn those curses into blessings? God, I'm, I'm living in your love. Would you turn those curses into blessing because no curse that doesn't have a cause can find a place to roost on my life. Thank you, Jesus. It, it, this promise that he'll, he'll work, make all things work together is all-inclusive 
It's all powerful. It's always available. There are no exceptions. It's, it's ironclad guaranteed. It's based on the character of God. When a promise is made, the promise only depends on one thing, the character of the dependent. This is not a conditional promise. It, I mean, it is a little bit conditional. It's for those who love God. But if you love God, there are no other conditions. You could be stupid and love God. You could make mistakes and love God. You could make blunders and it'll turn them into blessings. Come on, this is what we're saying, that this applies to every tragedy, every trial, every teardrop, every burden, every setback, every delay, and his plans are always better than we expect. Amen? Amen. So I just wanna pray a prayer for you, and I, I think the Holy Spirit, if you're hungry or thirsty, or you just want more, you're invited to come forward. And, but I wanna, I, you can come whenever you want, but I'm gonna pray a blessing, which is the prayer that Paul prayed in Romans 13, verse 15. No, it's Romans 15, verse 13, sorry. Yeah, you know, it's somewhere in the neighborhood. It's Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, he calls himself God of hope, and we're people of God, so we're people of hope. May the God of hope fill you, fill you, fill you, to overflowing with all peace, like all the peace in the universe, all the shalom in the universe, nothing missing, nothing broken. And may he fill you with all peace and all joy, all the joy that's in his presence, this absolute joy, this sheer delight. May he fill you with this so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest miracle, that you overflow with hope wherever you go, that you have an abundance of hope wherever you go, that every situation you're facing is turned to the better. God, that every, I mean, do you understand that love is the basis of every healing, every deliverance, every breakthrough, every salvation. So when we're filled with the love of God, when the love of God is poured out upon us as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us, all things are possible. And so I declare that over you, over your businesses, over your families, over your, your situations that you're in, over every, your hopes and dreams, I just declare, God, because we love you, all things are possible. Let's say it together. With God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible, which means nothing is impossible. Father, I pray that you would release hope, you would release perspective, and that this word that has been heard today would become a seed that would bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.